Anyway, is under the seats in front of you. The page number's right there. Second um, Kings chapter six. And uh, before we start diving into the passage, uh, I just thought it would be good and appropriate to start with this psalm. Psalm one nineteen says this: "Deal bountifully with your servant, that I might live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I might see wondrous things from your law." I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. And uh, I just love that, especially the middle part of that passage, just asking the Lord to open our eyes to see the wonderful things in his law, the wonderful things in his word. And so I just want to invite you guys, as we start the study in the Bible, that we would just ask the Lord to open our eyes, to, to hear from him, and to see the beautiful and amazing things he's written for us in his word. And uh, with that, I just love what Jesus said. Um, he, he said, hey, with the measure that you use, he said, be careful how you listen. He says, with the measure you used, it will be measured back to you. Or the idea is like, hey, if you have like a tiny little measuring spoon and then you have like a big old measuring cup and you had the option to like grab a whole uh, scoop of gold, right? What are you going to use? You're not going to use the little teaspoon. You're going to use the big one, right? And, and the idea is, hey, let's come with hearts that are open to hear from the Lord and wanting to hear from the Lord. And he says, hey, with the amount you come, that's the amount you're going to get, right? And so let's just ask the Lord, hey, open our eyes, open our hearts to see from your word. So let's do that together. Lord, we just pray. First of all, we just thank you that you love us. You want us to see things rightly. You want us to hear from you. You tell us that if we would draw near to you, you would draw near to us. Lord, we believe that promise. And so, Lord, this morning, help us to draw near to you as we open your word together. We just pray that through the power of your spirit, you would speak to us, you would open our hearts, you would open our eyes to see the amazing things that you want us to see through your word. And we ask for all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, to start off with, let's just read through our passage, and then we'll start working through it together, uh, but we'll just read the entirety of it. Chapter 8, starting in verse 7. I'm sorry, I totally threw you guys off. I was making sure you guys were paying attention. Chapter 6, starting in verse 8. I switched those, I think. Okay, anyways, chapter 6, verse 8. I like that you guys are all switching your pages. That was good. That's good. I got you guys, see? All right, chapter 6, verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he was consulting with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there not just once or twice. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called to his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, and send, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. 
And when the servant of the man of God rose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So it was, when they had come to Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And there they were, inside Samaria. Now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? But he answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those to whom you have take, taken captive with your sword and bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast, and they ate and drank, and he sent them away, that they, uh, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. So this is really an amazing encounter, an amazing story God records for us in the scriptures, very gripping and, and really helpful uh, in our walk with the Lord as we see. Um, before we dive into it, though, let's just kind of get our bearings a little bit uh, of context. So this is taking place roughly about 850 years before Christ, just for a timeline. And uh, we're, we're dealing with the king of Syria. His name is Ben-Hadad. We learned that from other passages. Um, and and Ben-Hadad is going to have multiple encounters with Elisha as well as the king of Israel uh, before the, the time of his death. Um, and then we're introduced to the man of God. Um, and, and he's also known as Elisha. And uh, he, he's the prophet Elijah's successor. Um, his name means uh, the Lord of Salvation. And um, I think just as a side note, it's just a beautiful thing that his, his name was synonymous, synonymous with the man of God, right? Somebody could just say, hey, the man of God, and they know, oh, you're talking about Elijah, right? And I just think about our lives, and I wonder if our lives would ever be characterized that way in other people's language, right? Where they would say, oh, you know, so-and-so, they're a man of God, or so-and-so, they're a woman of God, right? And if, if we think about that and, like, there's no way anybody would ever say that, then we probably should be thinking seriously about how the way we're walking with the Lord, right? I think about what Colossians tells us, and he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And just thinking about this reality, if we belong to the Lord, he tells us, hey, Christ isn't just an add-on to your life. Like, he is your life. He's your everything. That's what Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life, right? And so if that's the case, like our lives really should be in the same way that Elisha's life was 
um, characterized by a man who is devoted and in love with God, right? That our life should be characterized that same way. He is our life. He is our hope. He, he was loved us first. And I think it's just a beautiful thing that he was known that way. And many others throughout the scriptures have been known that way, where their name could be spoken of. Hey, the man of God, the, the woman of God, right? And, and, and so may that be true in our lives. Um, and then we were introduced as well as to the king of Israel, and his name is Jehoram, and uh, he, he was a, a wicked man, but the scripture lets us know that he wasn't as wicked as his father Ahab, um, but he was still a wicked king. And so even as God intervenes for the nation of Israel, it's, you just see God's grace because they were definitely not seeking him at this point of their history, and he was still working and still seeking to show himself to them, reveal himself to them, and work on their behalf so that they would, would come to him, right? Um, so let's keep going in, in um, this passage. We'll start it back up in, in uh, verse 8. It says, Now the king of Syria was making war with Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not go, uh, pa- do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the, king of the, uh, uh, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. So at this point in Israel's history, as the Lord starts giving Elisha the top secret information of of the Syrians, right? Um, Ben-Hadad, the king, he, you know, he's got this top secret information he's sharing with his officials and whatnot. Uh, and this information is really impossible for Elisha to have any other way except from the Lord, right? I mean, this was before the age of being able to bug somebody's room or plant a camera or plant a, a microphone, right? This was before the age of emails and text and all that kind of stuff, um, uh, satellite imagery, you know, this is before all of that, of course. And, and there's just no other way other than a spy, right? And so that's what the, the king assumes. He's like, hey, it must be a spy, right? Tell me who's for the king of Israel. Like, who's the inside man? Who, who, who's the mole here, right? And, and, and then one of the servants just speaks up. None of us. It's, it's Elisha, right? Elisha's able to say, tell the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. When you think about that, it's like, it doesn't get more private than that, right? The very most private place you think that nobody else sees, nobody else knows, he says, hey, he can tell you those, those words that you speak in your bedroom. And Ben-Hadad's response is totally logical, right? He's like, all right, well, let's go get the guy, right? <laughs> he, he won't see it coming, right? He won't see it coming. Um, of course, it's, it's kind of comical what he does here. It's also tragic, though, um, that coming face to face with the power of Elisha's God, with the knowledge of Elisha's God, he decides instead of bowing his knees before the Lord, he, he tries to fight it, right? He tries to do his own thing. It's like, yeah, I'll just arrest the dude and maybe make him part of my team or kill him, 
right? Um, clearly not seeing rightly. And, and um, I think, you know, we look at his life and we think, man, that guy's a crazy guy, right? But I think his life hits a lot closer to home than we realize. We live in a world where, by and large, this is what people are doing, right? Coming face to face with a, a God who made all things, created all things, therefore clearly knows all things, and yet, it's rather than bowing the knee to him, fighting against him and trying to hide from him. I guess this is what I mean. Ben-Hadad should have dropped to his knees when he saw this situation, when he understood the ramifications of what this meant, that nothing was hidden from Elisha's God. He should have dropped to his knees in awe and fear of God, a God that was so powerful and big. Um, And it's made clear to him, right, that Elisha's God is able to know all things, right? Even the, the biggest secret you could keep. I mean, you think about, you know the resources that a government uses to hide its deep, dark secrets, right? Um, you know, maybe we experience that a little bit in, in our country, and you see it in other countries, and th- this is no exception, right? Like, of course, this, these guys are t- being secretive. Of course, these guys are doing their best to keep everything on the hush-hush, right? And yet, God clearly brings it to the light, and that's a big deal, right? Uh, that he, he sees that, and yet he insists on fighting the Lord and rather than humbling himself and seeking his mercy. And, and you kind of see that he understands a little bit of the, the magnitude of the situation because he doesn't just send like a small task force of guys, right? He literally sends a great army of guys to go arrest one dude, right? Um, so he, he understands, hey, I'm dealing with something more than just you know, a normal person here, right? There's something here. Um, it is funny, though. He's still trying to, you know, keep a secret about it. I mean, he sends the army at night. It's like, okay. So this guy just doesn't get it. He's blinded in, in the midst of all of this. And, and, and yet, like I said, so many in our world are, are in that place of responding to God that way. We're thinking, oh, I can pull the wool over his eyes. Oh, I can get out from under his gaze and get out from the judgment that, that is mine for the way I have rebelled against him. And actually, I mean, each one of us in this room, uh, if you know the Lord here today, we were in that place at one point or another in our life. So we shouldn't look in pride in that. Um, but I think about what it says in Romans. Um, and it says, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because... He has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. He's like, hey, people, through seeing creation, it's God is revealing, hey, that he exists, that he is, he, he is God, and he, he has eternal power, he has divine nature, right? He is God. He's the one who made all things. And, and if you would just take time to look at creation, you, you start to see that, right? You see the complexities of the human body. You see the complexities of the way, um, you know, the things like atmosphere and all these different things work together, where if you're just missing one thing or just off a little bit, like life doesn't exist, things don't work here on this earth, right? Um, you, you start to look at it and you're like, man, yeah, there is an eternal God with an absolutely brilliant mind who created all these things, made these things, and it points us, we're going to 
He tells us nobody's going to get to stand before God in the day of judgment and say, oh yeah, I had no clue. He's saying, no, you, you know, right? It's very obvious that God exists. Romans 2 puts it this way. He says they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or, the, uh, or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. He's saying, hey, like, not only is creation revealing the knowledge about God, but also the conscience that God has placed in every human heart, right? The conscience is bearing witness that, hey, we have this God that we're accountable to. When we have that guilty conscience, right, it's, it's saying, hey, this is wrong, and, and, and I, I'm sinning against my Creator, right? We can suppress that, and we can sear that conscience, the Bible tells us. In addition to our conscience, the Bible tells us Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be working in this world, in our hearts, convicting us of our sins, right? And so we're not going to be without excuse. We're really, every human being comes face to face with this reality. Okay, there is a God, and I'm accountable to Him. And we can respond to that in one of two ways. We can either respond like Ben Haydad, like, nah. I still can hide from this God. I can still outwit this God. I can still do my own thing. I can be my own God, my own judge. Or we can come humbly before him and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and this is crazy, right? Like the world we live in, it's taken so lightly. It's taken so lightly that God knows all things, that he's our judge, right? I mean, it's led people to make memes like this, you know, People be like, only God can judge me, and I'd be like, that should scare you, right? Like, that's the reality of, of so many people, the way they, they deal with it. Like, they're, uh, they're more concerned about what other people think, and that other people might know that they have sin, and they're not concerned with the fact that God is their judge, the righteous, perfect judge that they'll stand account to. Um, it's serious stuff, and this stuff is all throughout the scriptures. Ecclesiastes puts it this way, the end of the matter is this, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's just telling us nobody gets away with anything, right? Whether that's the, the you know, poorest person in the world, the most powerless person in the world, or the richest politician in the world, he says nobody gets away with anything. God sees it all, and he's going to bring it to judgment, Proverbs puts it this way. It says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Proverbs also says, For the Lord sees clearly what a man does, examining every path he takes. The Lord says, Hey, I, he sees it all. Proverbs goes on to say, Even hell and destruction hold no secrets from the Lord. How much more does he know the hearts of the children of men? Right? So this is... It goes beyond just the outward actions. He says, hey, I see the heart, right? God sees everything, not just the actions, not just the words, but the heart. And that's why when Jesus was teaching about what is right and what is wrong, he took it a step further than the Ten Commandments. He said, hey, you heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But he said, but I tell you, whoever looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery in his heart, right? Like God sees the heart. We know that from the scriptures, right? In, in the book of uh, Samuel, Jesus spoke to the prophet Samuel, and he said, hey, don't look at people the way people look at people, right? That's the way you're looking at this situation. You're just looking on the outside. Oh, this looks like a great, great person, great thing. He says, the Lord looks at the heart, right? That's what God's looking at, and God judges the heart and the actions that flow from the heart, right? 
And so he sees the heart, right? That's why Jesus also said, hey, you've heard it said you shall not murder. But he says, but I tell you, if you've ever been angry at your brother without cause, you're guilty of murdering that person in your heart, right? God looks at the heart. He says it's from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks wickedness. And the overflow of the heart where murder comes and um, all the different type of sin we see in this world. Jeremiah, the Lord, puts it this way. It says, I... The Lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deed, right? He, he not only looks at the action, but he looks at the motivation behind the action. He's saying, hey, I'm going to bring that to account, right? In the sense that we all belong to the Lord. He is the one who's created us just in the same way that maybe somebody who's investing money for you, that's not their money. They are going to give account to you for what they did, right? And if they embezzle the money or do something, they're going to give account to the government and go, go to jail or whatever. We're give account to God. He is our creator. He is our maker. And, and we're going to be accountable unto him. And maybe one of the most serious and, and scary scriptures in the scriptures is this. Hebrews says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I mean, this was the reality that Ben-Hadad was, was facing, right? To the point where he's like, hey, the most private thing in your life, the, the conversations between you and your wife in your bedroom, whatever, right? Th- God knows that, right? And yet he has a stiff face and fights against the Lord. And yet w- w- this is revealed to us, and, and so often we can go that way, right? Maybe it was before we came to Christ, um, maybe some of you don't know the Lord yet, and you're there fighting against the Lord, and, and he's revealing to you, hey, he's powerful, he's God, you're accountable to him, he sees all things, he knows all things. I mean, just think about it. He says, everything's naked. It's all exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And that should scare us, right? I mean, it should, right? That should be like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Like, the one I'm, he's the one that matters, right? He's the one that I give an account to. I don't give an account to the next door neighbor or to my relative or yada yada. Ultimately, I'm accountable to God and he sees it all. He knows it all. And we will give an account to him for our actions, for our thoughts. And that's a scary thing. It's a heavy thing. But this is also what makes the good news so good, right? That even while knowing all of our evil, every single evil thought we'd ever have, every single action, every evil thing in our lives and in everyone's life in the whole world, God still loved us and proved his love for us. Romans 5.8 puts it this way, but God clearly shows and proves his own love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He knew everything, everything you had done and would do, right? Um, And yet he still sent his son in love so that we could be forgiven of our sins, right? So we didn't have to stand accountable before God for our sins, but Jesus would stand accountable for our sins. He would bear the wrath of God on the cross. As the scripture said, he bore in his body our sins. And the scripture says, anyone who calls on him will be forgiven, made right with him. And so we think about this as just, if you know the Lord today, this should just be a reason for rejoicing and thinking, God, you know every evil, evil thing I have done, would do, and it didn't scare you away, right? You love me anyways and made a way for me to be rescued out of all that, saved and brought to you. And so if anything, if you know the Lord, it should just be a reminder of his deep love for you 
I love the way David puts it in Psalm 139. He says, you, um, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar off. You know my thought life. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with you, with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, oh Lord, you know it all together. It's like, you know what I'm going to say even before I say it. All the stupid things I'm going to say or the good things, like, you know it all. And imagine if you don't know the Lord and you say that, right? That's scary stuff. You're like, oh my gosh, he knows the thoughts I'm thinking before I think it. He knows the words I'm going to say before I say it. He knows all of that, like, man, I'm in trouble, right? He saw what I was doing last night, or he saw what I was doing last week, or he saw what I'm doing right now, right? Um, he saw it all, right? That's a terrifying thought if you are rebelling against the Lord like Ben-Hadad was. But if you know the Lord, if you surrender to the Lord, if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and your sins have been washed away, then man, this is an amazing thought to know, hey, the Lord, he knows me. He knows everything about me, and he still loves me, and he's making me new, and he's got his eye on me, right? He, he, he knows where I'm at, and he knows what I'm facing. He hasn't forgotten me. And David goes on to speak this way. He says, you hem me in behind and before. You're right there looking after me. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So for the children of God, when we think about his, his knowledge that he knows all things. It should lead us to a place of, man, this is so wonderful. This is so amazing. Man, I can't even fathom this. That He knows everything about me, still loves me, and he's here for me. He's looking out for me. And, and I love the way David ends this psalm. And I think it's a really beautiful place for us to come to as God's people, as we think about the reality that God knows all things, to come and surrender to him in this way. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts or anxieties. And he says, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, right? He just comes and he bows his knees before the Lord. And he's like, Lord, search me out, right? You already know everything about me, but I'm just inviting this. I'm just embracing this reality that you know everything. Search me out, know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts or my anxieties. You could translate that and see if there's any wicked way in me. Search me out. Show me, because I don't even know my own heart fully. Like, God, you can see my heart better than I can see my heart. Search me out. Show me any wickedness in there, and then lead me in the way everlasting, right? What a beautiful place to surrender to the Lord as he knows all things and yet loves us as his people if we've turned to him in faith. That's a beautiful and a very peaceful place to be as a child of God. And yet, if you find yourself rebelling against God and trying to hide your sin. Just know your sin's going to find you out. Like, don't go down that path. God knows it. He's seen it. There's a judgment coming. Proverbs just puts it beautifully. He says, whoever conceals or hides his transgression, his sin, will not prosper, right? Judgment's coming for that. But he says, but whoever confesses, and to confess means, hey, I'm agreeing with God. I'm, I'm saying, God, you're right. I'm wrong. But he, whoever confesses, um, that he who confesses and forsakes their sins, turns from it, turns to God, will obtain mercy, right? God's saying, hey, you, you try to hide your sin, I know it already, and it's going to be judged, right? But you, you confess it to me, you bring it in the open and surrender it to me and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, I'll give you mercy, right? God wa doesn't want to judge, right? Instead, the scripture says that he, he seeks out ways that he would restore us to himself, bring us to himself, and ultimately that is in Christ. Okay, well, let's move on from Ben-Hadad's foolishness to see how Elisha and his servant deal with the situation they're thrown into. 
So verse 15 is where we'll jump back to. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out uh, there, an army, saw there an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So Elisha's servant wakes up early in the morning, you know, probably just doing his average routine, whatever that was. I don't know if they brushed teeth back then or not, or, you know, had coffee, whatever he was doing, you know, getting ready, um, washing his face off. And then he just looks up, steps outside, looks up, and is like, oh, my gosh. And he just comes inside, alas, master, which is maybe like, I don't know what you say, we're screwed or something. I don't know what that translation means, but uh, alas, man, we're in trouble, right? Like modern rendition of that. We're, we're toast, right? Like, what do we do? I don't know what to do. Um, he, he goes to his master, which this is a good example for us, right? Um, when we're led to a moment where we are full of confusion and panic and dread, one good thing to do is to go to a more mature believer and say, hey, what should I do in this situation, right? I mean, first of all, we should take it to the Lord in prayer and get in his word, right? But in the midst of that, God calls us to to carry each other's burdens, right? To, To be there for one another, to sharpen each other and to help each other be encouraged in the Lord. And so it's right that he goes to Elisha to seek his wisdom and his guidance in this as a more mature believer in, in the faith. Um, and so that's a good example for us. Um, you know, but who knows what the servant's thinking when he gets the, the word of advice from, from Elisha. He's like, hey, chill out, bro. Calm down. It's going to be all right. There's more with, you know, maybe he's shaking Elisha, waking him up from bed. And Elisha's like, you know, and he's like, hey, uh, there's an army surrounding us. And, and Elisha just like rolls over and he's like, ah, go back to bed. There's more with us than are with them. He's like, man, you're crazy, right? What's going on? Like, did you fail math class? I, I count one and two and I count thousands of guys out there. We're, we're not winning this thing, right? We're, we're, there's something off here. I don't know what was going through the servant's head. Thankfully, Elisha graciously prays for the servant. He didn't have to do this, right? The servant would have been fine all the same. It would have worked out because God was going to work and come through like he was anyways. But God graciously opens the eyes of the servant. Elisha prays and asks, hey, open the servant's eyes. So let's read that. Verse 17, and Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, speaking of the angels of the Lord, the warriors of the Lord that were unseen moments ago, now seen. Now, verse 17 really marks a big shift in this passage, right? Everything changes, and yet nothing really changes, right? I mean, the situation doesn't change at all, right? Everything was going to work out the way it was going to work out, The only thing that changed was the servant's perspective, as well as ours, because we're first now introduced to this invisible army at this moment in the text. So our our understanding is opened in this moment, and the servant's understanding was open. But this was the reality already of the situation. And, And so this passage really brings out an important lesson that's all throughout the scriptures, that we, as God's people, need to live by faith and not by sight. And that's not saying to, you know, 
make up fairy tales and believe in them. That's not at all what faith is about. I think of what the way G. Campbell Morgan put it. He said, faith is never the imagining of unreal things. True faith, that is. It is the grip of things which cannot be demonstrated to the senses, but which are real. The chariot of horses and fire were actually there, right? They were there all along, and God was going to work and do what he's going to do. The servant just didn't recognize it, didn't perceive it, right? Charles Spurgeon would put it this way, that you have not perceived spiritual things may be true, but it is no proof that there are none to perceive. And he's just saying, hey, you know, just because you don't perceive it doesn't mean it's not there to perceive. I wonder today if we were to take a spiritual eye exam, I wonder how thick of glasses we'd need, right? Um, something to think about. We're going to come back to that here in just a minute. Uh, but let's, for the time being, continue in on the passage at hand. Verse 18. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. I think it's very interesting here that God had just opened the eyes of the servant of God, right? He had just opened the eyes of a man who was humbled before the Lord and then shortly after blinds the eyes of those who are living and fighting against God, those who have a proud heart towards God. He closes their eyes, those who are resisting. And this is a principle all throughout the scriptures, right? The humbled have their eyes open and the proud have their eyes shut by the Lord. Jesus put it this way. He he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, the know-it-alls, right? And have revealed them to babes, the humble, the simple. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. Peter would put it this way. He said, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is just a reality that as we walk in pride and resistance to the Lord, our eyes are just going to come darker and darker and darker, right? But if we humble ourselves before the Lord, He's going to open our eyes. He gives sight to the lowly, the Psalms say. And, um, and so in this, when we, we see the blindness come upon this army, the question might be, hey, is this a full blindness, like pitch black, they can't see anything? Or is this a partial blindness in the sense that, hey, they, they can't recognize Elisha, they kind of lose bearing on where they're at, but they can still see so that they can make like the 10 to 12 mile trek between Dothan and um, Samaria. Um, you, you know, we don't know for sure, right? Maybe they were kind of playing Marco Polo with Elisha and he's just like, hey, this way, this way, this way. Or, or maybe they're able to see partially kind of like the servant saw partially, right? But he didn't see everything. And so not for sure on that. Uh, doesn't really matter one way or another. They're blinded to the extent where they certainly don't know they're right in front of Elisha and they don't really know where they're at. Um, And then verse 19, it says, Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And there they were inside Samaria. 
So this is crazy. This is incredible, right? God uses one man to take down what was described to us as a great army. And uh, this reminds me of something, a pastor I often listen to, Damien Kyle, he, he often says this. He says, God plus one is a majority. And then he'll stop and say, actually, God plus none is a majority, right? God doesn't need our help. He, he, he can do things on his own, right? But the reality is, man, if God is for us, who can be against us? Like moments before, it looked like Elisha and his servant were toast, right? Like from, if you were a random observer in the city, you would have been like, oh my gosh, these guys, they're done, right? It was nice knowing you, Elisha, and Elisha's servant. Uh, you know, I'm going to go hide in a hole now and hope that they don't take me too, right? Like, you know, it looked impossible, absolutely impossible to the naked eye, to, to the human eye. Everything looked like it was against Elisha, and yet God can do whatever he wants, right? The psalm says, God's in the heavens. He does whatever he wants. He does what he pleases. Now, a question to ask, maybe you might be asking, hey, is Elijah lying here? I mean, he's like, this ain't the place. This ain't, you know, I'm going to lead you to the guy. Um, it's possible, right? I mean, Jesus is the only sinless one. We see countless times where God's people fall short. So it is possible, though it's also very likely he's simply being wise, in the midst, wise as a serpent in the midst of wartime, either leading them to the man they're ultimately looking and fighting against, which would be the king of Israel, or um, simply using his world, words carefully to lead them to where they needed to be when they found Elisha. Because, I mean, he does lead them to himself technically, right? I mean, he's like, hey, follow me and I'll lead you to the guy. When they open their eyes, he's right in front of them. So he does technically lead them. So I don't know. Uh, you can figure that out on your own if you want, but uh, just something to think about. Um, verse 21. Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? But he answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away. And they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. So don't let the king of Israel's rhetoric fool you, right? He says, my father, my father, and you might think, oh man, this is a godly king, right? Um, no, he doesn't ultimately respect this prophet. He's going to one day try to kill him. Um, and, and he's a wicked king. The word lets us know that. Um, but he asked, he asked Elisha, hey, should we kill him? Should we kill him? Which Honestly, it's kind of a logical thing. I mean, these guys have been attacking them and trying to kill them, so I'd be like, yeah, let's kill them, right? But God has a different plan, different thing in mind, and instead he tells them, hey, no, bless them and let them go, right? Bless your enemies and let them go. And man, isn't that a good example for us as followers of Christ, right? Jesus said, hey, love your enemies, do good to those who, who persecute you, pray for them, right? Um, and maybe there's some of us in this room that that's exactly what you need to do in your life, that you need to bless your enemies and then let them go, right? Let them go. Let go of the bitterness, the anger, the malice that's there, and instead be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God forgave you in Christ, so you forgive others, right? Maybe that's exactly what you need to do is to bless them and let them go, right? Let go of the grudges and the hatred and the animosity and let forgiveness fill your heart. Romans would tell us to do that, 
Romans 12 says, If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself. Rather, give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's God's job to judge. He knows all things. He's a perfect judge. We are not. That's not our place. Says the Lord, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will keep coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And maybe this very passage is coming to Paul's mind as he, he wrote this in Romans, right? As the Spirit of God led him to write this in Romans, he's thinking, man, remember back when, when uh, the king of Israel fed his enemies and let him go um, at, at Elijah's command? And, um, you know, this kindness and grace does seem to bring about some sort of temporary peace, between Syria and Israel, as it says, the bands of Syrian raiders came no longer to that place. Um, so it, it's, it's possible that this kindness and this grace is what led them to that moment of peace. It's also possible that the soldiers came back to Ben-Hadad and was like, hey, don't send anybody else to Israel. That place is weird, right? It's like the Bermuda Triangle down there. We thought we were in one place, and then we ended up surrounded in the capital of Israel, like, and then they just sat us down, fed us, gave us a drink, and then sent us on our way home. Uh, it's just like the twilight zone there. Like, just, it's weird, right? Don't, don't go back over there. Our GPS could not have been that off, right? Something was going on. Um, whatever it was that led to this momentary peace, it is short-lived, right? Verse 24, if you look at it, it says, And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Israel, gathered all of his army and went up and besieged Samaria. So some time passes, and then he's like, nah, I'm going to fight him again, right? And so once again, you see the blindness of Ben-Hadad. Like, imagine the blindness that he has to have, where, first of all, it's revealed to him, God knows all things, and then he sends a great army, and one dude takes him out. Like, come on, how, how stubborn and blind can you be? But man, that's, that's the story of all of us, right? Like, the scriptures tell us we're so blind, it's only God's grace. It's only God that can open our eyes. It's possible that Ben-Hadad's eyes do get open. At the end of his life, on his deathbed, he is going to send for the prophet Elisha and ask, hey, am I going to recover from this? So he definitely has this sense like, hey, that's where the power's at. It's not in the gods I've been worshiping, you know, so I don't know if he came to the Lord or not, but at least there's indication that there's hope, there's possibility that he finally, at the end of his life, turned to the Lord. Um, yeah. So, uh, at this moment, we're just going to take a quick minute to take a visit at the spiritual eye office. So if everybody could uh, put their right hand over their eye. No, I'm just kidding. I got some of you guys. <laughs> How many of you guys hate going to the eye doctor and they're like, hey, it, can you see this one better or this one better? And you're like, ah, uh, they're the same. I do that every time. I'm always like, man, it's a miracle if I get a right prescription from this place. But anyways, hopefully this one won't be that difficult. Um, maybe it will. Um, so some questions I think it would be wise for us to just examine our own hearts, examine our own lives, and say, hey, man, where is my spiritual vision? Where Am I seeing things the way God sees them, or am I seeing it all wrong from my human perspective? Because that's really one of the big themes of this section, is just needing to see things the way God sees them, see things as they really are. One of them would be, hey, if you're married, what's your view of marriage? How do you view the struggles, the strains, and the annoyances in your marriage? Do you, do you view them as obstacles to avoid 
or as opportunities to display God's grace and love uh, in, a re- in, in a relationship that represents the relationship between Christ and the church, right? When you hit those road bumps, are you the same man? This is opportunity to, to display the love of Christ towards the church and the church's love and submission towards Christ, right? Or do you see it as, man, this is terrible, right? Or if you're not married, how do you view your singleness? Do you view it as a deep and lonely, dark, terrible burden? Or do you see it as an unprecedented opportunity to serve the Lord? Because the scriptures would tell us, 1 Corinthians 7 would say, hey, this is an opportunity to serve the Lord. So don't dread that, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with seeking marriage, right? But also be present in the moment where the Lord has you. Um, and, and don't m- missee the opportunity God has before you. So many people miss all the opportunities that God would have them to serve him and grow in him during their singleness because they're so focused on w- wanting marriage and, and being depressed, yada, 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 right? And they miss the opportunity God has right before them. Or maybe you have children. What's your view of raising children, right? How, how do you look at that? Um, how, how do you view the moments of changing diapers at 3 in the morning and screaming babies, feeding them, playing with the kids when you get home from work and you're exhausted, or dealing with the meltdowns and the stubbornness and the rebellion, the sass, right? Do you see those as burdens and obstacles to have to deal with or avoid, or do you see them as opportunities to raise your children in the ways of the Lord, right? The scriptures tell us that, right? It says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Instead, raise them up in the ways of the Lord. Uh, Titus says, wives, love your children, right? Look after them, care for them, raise them. Or, what's your view towards random people, right? How do you view the sassy customer who's always right? You know, the obnoxious co-workers always complaining, or the average person you just meet day to day. Do you see them as just another face, another person you have to put on a smile and act polite so that you can get through your day and go home and watch your TV show or something? Or do you see them as a soul made in the image of God that Christ died for and that desperately needs Jesus just as much as you? Right? How do we see the people around us? Jesus said, hey, look up. Lift up your eyes. The harvest is ready. People all around you need the Lord. Like, man, see people the way God sees them, not the way we see them. How do you view your job? Is just another mundane day-to-day grind that you have to go to again, right? Monday again, right? Or do you see it as, man, you know what? This is where I'm at, and this is an opportunity to work hard for the Lord, to honor Him wherever I'm at, to provide for my family or to provide for the needs of uh, the, the poor and needy in our community, right? Like, how do we see these things as obstacles or opportunity to serve the Lord? How do you view your needs? Do you view your needs as, as things that you're constantly worrying about and constantly fretting about and constantly like, oh my gosh, is this going to work out? Or... Do you have peace knowing, hey, you know what? The Lord knows my needs before I even mention them, and he is well able to provide for them if, if that is what is needed in my life. Even as Psalm 23 would tell us, right? The Lord's my shepherd. I have all that I need. I have all that uh, 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 is needed, right? I shall not want. Or Jesus would say, hey, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and, and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. He'll take care of you. How do you view politics, right? 
Is this something that, man, every time the election cycle comes around, you're just absolutely like running around with a chicken, it's like a chicken without its head. Like, man, what is going to go on? What happens if my guy doesn't get elected? Or, you know, we're going to be toast. The nation's done, right? Is that how you view politics? And are you always going about with these crazy rants on social media and stuff and, and missing the point that, hey, you know what? No matter who's elected, God's sovereign over it all. Yes, vote. Yes, be a voice for the voiceless, right? Stand up for, uh, against abortion. Stand up against all the wickedness in our uh, culture and world, right? But at the end of the day, is your hope in a leader, right? Or is it in the Lord, right? The scripture said, don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in leaders and rulers, but in the Lord, right? Salvation is of him, not of humans. Not even Trump, right? Like, yeah, it just doesn't work. Okay, had to throw that in there. But uh, anyways, um, you know, the scriptures tell us he, he's the one who sets up leaders, puts them down. He's in charge of that. Instead, he tells us, hey, pray for them, right? So we should be praying for the people that are in authority right now, right? That God would get a hold of their hearts and, and they would make right decisions. Like, that's how we should be viewing this as looking to the Lord and not to our own resources, not to our own schemes, how do you view the other powerful countries in the world, right? When you think of China, when you think of Russia, when you think of um, maybe North Korea, right? Do you, do you live in constant dread? Like, oh my gosh, am I going to get nuked, right? Or, or all these crazy things that we might think. Do we live in dread of this or do we look at it the way God does? Those nations are a what? Drop in the bucket to God, right? It's like, yeah, it's just like a little drop in a big old bucket. Ain't nothing, right? It's got nothing on him. It, it, The scripture said that in the end, when all the nations rise up against him, he's just going to speak a word and they're done, right? Every knee is going to bow to him. He's got it in the bag. I don't have this one to throw up on the screen, but um, I was thinking about it this morning. Um, One that Pastor Jim recently taught us. How are you doing with your view on getting older, right? Uh, While your body is falling apart and, and things are coming about, right? Do you view it in the same way the world does, right? You're like, man, maybe I should get a Botox or plastic surgery or, you know, like, you know, I, I, I have no hope. I'm, I'm, I'm not the hottie I used to be or whatever, right? We, we start to freak out and, and God would tell us to see things very differently, right? That as we age, the scriptures tell us he's our God of, of all of our days, right? To our gray hair, he's our God. He has made us, he will carry us. Pastor Jim taught it. Recently in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, we don't give up. Even though our outward man is perishing, we're getting wrinkles, we're getting sags, our hair is turning gray, right? Our body's falling apart. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, it's a relief, right? If you've been looking in the mirror like, oh. you're like, okay, thank you, Lord, that I don't have to have my hope there, right? Um, instead, we look at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. Our bodies are temporary. Our homes are temporary. Our cars are temporary. The politics are temporary. Our country is temporary, Right? It's all temporary. The things that are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So that was a relatively short test. But uh, it could be a lot bigger, right? But just a question, like, how, how are we doing, right? 
I, I know for me, I, I need a, a better prescription, right? I need an updated prescription, and maybe some of y'all are like that, right? And, and um, thankfully, the Lord has that prescription for us, right? I mean, what if I were to tell you God has a pair of glasses for you that would correct our lack of spiritual vision? And he does. It's the prayer and the word of God. Prayer because, hey, this is not something we can do on our own, right? It's not like we can be the spiritual eye doctor and fix our own vision, right? Only God alone can open up our eyes. And so we need to turn to the Lord and say, oh, Lord, open my eyes that I would see, right? And that's why I love that psalm in the middle of it. Just open my eyes that I could see wonderful things from your law. Like, without your help, I'm blind. I'm lost. But with your help, I could see. So, Lord, help me to see and then we get into his words so that we can start seeing things the way God sees them as he's revealed them to us, right? I mean, we think about it. God is the only one with perfect 2020 vision in reality, right? He sees all things. He knows all things. He made all things. He knows how they work. He knows how they're going to end up. He's over it all. And so the more we can see things the way he sees them, the more we're actually going to be able to see things for how they really are. Psalms 119 again puts it this way, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Peter would put it this way, he says, hey, you do well to listen to God's word as a light that shines in a very dark place, right? He's like, hey, this is, this is the light, like everything else is pitch black, but God's word gives light to our lives, right? God's word gives light to our path. God's word allows us to be able to see things how they really are, see things the way God sees them. Elisha's servant was full of fear and panic and dread because he wasn't seeing things from God's perspective. He was like, oh, crap, we're done, right? We, what do we do, right? And yet, he could have had peace if he was seeing things from God's perspective all along, right? I mean, he had no doubt seen all the miracles that God had worked through Elisha. He had no doubt had testimony to the faithfulness of God and even the hope beyond the grave if worse came to worse. And I'm not knocking the servant because I'm just going to be honest. If I was that servant, I would have said the exact same thing to Elijah. I know it. <laughs> so, uh, but I want to grow. And, uh, and no doubt, the servant grew through this experience and starting to see things differently, you know. And the scriptures tell us, I mean, like, that wasn't an isolated event. Though we don't see it, angels are here in this room. Angels are here around the world the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that God's angels are ministering spirits. They're sent to, to minister, to serve those who are going to inherit salvation, those who are redeemed by Christ. Like, we have angels looking out after us. More than that, we have a God who doesn't miss anything looking out after us. And I love this prayer that uh, Paul prays in Ephesians. He prays for something very similar to what we're talking about. It, it centers on this reality that the eyes of these believers would be opened. He said, for this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not stop, do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Once again, we need the Lord to do this. He opened our eyes so that we could see him and his beauty and his majesty and his worthiness and his power. So he says, God, would you open up their eyes, right? Help them to see this. And then he just specifically says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, 
And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He just specifically says, hey, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, right, opened up so that you would know what is the hope which he has called you, right? You would know this hope, and if you knew this hope, then then you would be able to withstand anything, right, because of that hope. I mean, even as the book of Hebrews puts it, we have this hope in Jesus as an anchor for our soul. It's firm and secure, right? It weathers us through any storm. Um, and And I think just of one passage that maybe brings that hope out uh, so well um, as, as Romans 8. It's a bit of a longer passage, but bear with me in it because it, it really brings out this hope of our calling, the hope that we have in Jesus that would really bring us through any storm, anything we face. Romans 8 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Son, make us like Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified, made right with God through faith in Christ. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So kind of like we already said, right? Like it looked like Elisha and his servant were done from human perspective, but not from God's perspective. He's like, hey, I can change this in a moment, right? If God is for us, who can be against us, right? A whole army could be against us, and it would be okay. God is going to meet us as his people. Now, this doesn't mean that every story has the nice ending that this past story does, right? I mean, everybody, you know, everybody's rescued. It's like, you know, a happily ever after kind of story, right? Um, but um, it doesn't always end that way, but it does, right? What I mean by this is, we'll get there in a second, but, but look at this verse here. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This has to be maybe one of the most comforting passages to Christians in all the Bible, right? Just think about this reality. He's saying, hey, if he didn't withhold his very own son, but he gave him to save you from your sins, like, do you really think he's going to stop short on anything else if he gave his son How's he not also going to give, graciously give us all things, right? Not maybe all things that we have in mind, like, oh, I want a Lamborghini, right? But all things that he has in mind and all things that are good. When we think about the will of God, he tells us it's good, perfect, pleasing. It doesn't get any better than that, right? And so he's saying, hey, he's going to just realize this. He didn't spare his own son. Jesus literally came, lived a perfect life, and yet he died like an absolute vile criminal, bearing the weight of all of our sins. And as a father put Christ through that kind of torture because of the love he has for us, then of course, through Christ, he's going to graciously give us all things that he's created us for. Absolutely amazing passage. Very comforting. But then he, 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 goes, he, he carries on. He says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us, right? Jesus is praying for us. You can have a better prayer warrior on your side. Um, and he says, what shall, we, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as is it written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are slaughtered, regarded as sheep for the slaughter, right? So he's like, hey, it doesn't always have the fairy tale ending 
from human perspective, right? You know, it doesn't always work out where uh, there's an army of angels that blinds the people's eyes and, and you get away and they get, you know, caught and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't always work out that way. Unless God wants it to work out that way, then it does, right? But does that mean he doesn't love us if we face hard times, if we are persecuted, if we face moments of, of need or danger or even death by the sword, right? He says, does that mean God doesn't love us anymore? Will that separate us from his love? He says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else on all of creation, right? He's just going out of his way to say nothing, 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 forever, never, ever, right? Like nothing's going to separate you from the love of God no matter what you go through, right? If you know the Lord, Jesus said, nobody takes you from my hand, right? Nobody can take you from my hand, right? Cancer can't do that. Um, Trauma can't do that. Nothing can take us from the Lord's hands if if we belong to him. Nothing's going to separate us from his love. Not the unseen world, not Satan and his demons, nothing, right? He says nothing in all creation. And so this hope we have, man, what a solid hope we have. Like he's literally saying, hey, no matter what you go through, I've got you. Nothing's going to separate you from my love. And that's why Paul near the end of his life, right before he faces death row, gets his head chopped off, right? He's going to say, hey, my God's going to deliver me from every evil attempt and bring me safely home to, uh, to heaven with him, right? Paul's definition of safely home is very different than ours probably, right? Um, I mean, he was shipwrecked all kinds, beat, got the heck beat out of him multiple times, got stoned with rocks, right? Like terrible stuff. Um, and, and yet he's like, God's going to bring me through it all. Nothing separated me from God's love. The moment I die, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, he just had this confidence. And man, if, if our eyes are set on the promises of the Lord, no matter what we're going through, we're going to have peace. And that's what Jesus said. He says, I've told you all these things. This is a John chapter 16. He said, hey, I've told you all these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have many troubles, many trials, right? But take heart, don't give up. I've overcome and you will too, right? That's the idea. I've overcome the world. And, and so that's our hope. It's this unmovable hope. It doesn't get any more secure than that. Maybe the simplest way, though, that I can say this is just keep your eyes on Jesus. He came into the world to give us sight. He came to keep us. And he, he's the one that can keep us on track. I think of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive, captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Physically, yes, he healed the blind eyes, right? But more than that, this is speaking of the spiritual reality that Jesus had come as a light into the world to bring light to those who were in darkness. And Jesus said that in John chapter 8. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, right? Like, God doesn't want us to be having to trip over everything and be confused about why we're alive and what gender we are and all these different things, right? The world is living in this darkness, and God's just saying, no, right? This is the truth. This is the way. Jesus is it. Jesus came into this world to give us light. So we didn't have to live in darkness, but would have the light that leads to life, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And we're going to end with just a a short story again from the book of Kings as well as um, Chronicles. 
And I do know that it's 12 o'clock right now, but that's okay. We ordered pizza, so we'll have lunch after. No, just kidding. Um, I won't keep you that long, because I don't have the money to buy y'all pizza. <laughs> New parent, all that kind of stuff, so not happening. Okay, anyways, um, I, I love this story, right? King Jehoshaphat, um, he's king of, of Judah when the, the nation of Israel split to the northern and southern tribe. Um, and uh, they're surrounded by this massive army, right? Way too much for them to ever try to take on on their own, and they know it, right? But, but Jehoshaphat doesn't have the perk that Elisha did, right? He doesn't get to see the army of angels around. He only sees the hordes of this enemy that wants to devour them. And yet in the middle of all that chaos and you know, scary situation, he keeps his eyes on the Lord, and he finds the Lord to be his salvation. And it's so amazing. He says it this way in Second Chronicles um, chapter 20. It says, this is his prayer. He says, O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And I just love this. He's like, man, we're like totally lost. We don't know what to do, but we're just going to keep our eyes on you because we know that you know what to do, and you can take care of this, so we're just going to keep our eyes on you. And like, man, maybe that's, we just sometimes need it that simple. Like, okay, I don't have it all figured out. I definitely still need my prescription updated like on a daily basis, but Lord, I'm just going to keep my eyes on you. You know it. You, you got 20-20 vision, so I'm just going to keep my eyes on you and, and say, Lord, show me. Lord, help me. And Hebrews puts it beautifully. It says, let us run with endurance the race that God set before us, right? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Like, of course, that's where we're going to look. We're going to look to Jesus. He's the one who founded our faith. He's the one who made it possible for us to be saved from our sins and made right with God. He's the founder and also the perfecter. He's going to finish this thing. Like, keep your eyes on Jesus, right? Don't look at yourself. You'll mess it up, right? You're not the author of your faith. You're not the author, uh, and and you're not the perfecter of your faith. You're not going to hold this thing together. It's Jesus who holds it together, right? In him, all things hold together. Like, keep your eyes on Jesus. It'll turn out okay. Um, Yeah. You can close your Bibles. So I ran late to start the sermon, and I ended late, too. So, anyways, you'll be thankful when Pastor Jim arrives and (laughs) keeps things on time, like right on time. Okay, anyways, um, let's take a moment, guys, uh, just between you and the Lord, um, and just see where you're at. Just ask the Lord, hey, open my eyes, right, wherever that meets you. Maybe you don't know the Lord, maybe you do. Just take a quiet moment and seek the Lord together, and then we'll close in worship. We ask for your work in our hearts, in our lives this morning. You know where each one of us are at. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, I just join in the prayer, uh, something in your word that, that says that you would open their eyes, 
and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are made right with you through faith in Christ. And so, Lord, we just ask for that. If any here don't know you today, I pray that they would no longer run and hide from you, the all-powerful and all-knowing God. Instead, they would bend their knee before you, humble themselves before you, confess their sins, forsake them, and find mercy and grace in a gracious and loving God who, while we were still sinners, sent Christ for us. We thank you for that. And Lord, for those of us who know you, may we take comfort in the fact that you know everything. You know everything about us and you can lead us on in the straight path. We look to you, not ourselves. Lord, help us to be those who live our lives walking by faith and not by sight. May your word be the light to our feet. Lord, may we walk in your ways. We thank you that you did not spare even your own son, but loved us enough to send him to die for us. And Lord, just help us to believe that through him, you graciously give us all things, including the kingdom of God, heaven. Lord, you tell us that it gives you great delight to give that to us. So Lord, let us believe it. May our hearts be confident in you and firm in you. And we just pray for this, Father, in Jesus' name.